Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Instrumental, where Al and I will be curating side A of a mixtape featuring the melodies so good they don't need lyrics. This was a novel concept for me. I have never, never in, in my 49 years created a mixtape of songs without lyrics. Either have I. No? Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, my mixtapes always, they, they told stories. You know, I, I, I allowed the lyrics to say what I sometimes couldn't find the words to say myself when I would do mixtapes. So um, actually curating a collection of songs without lyrics, it's just, I don't know. I, I didn't know how this would, would work, but I'm really happy with my, my selections. There's a lot of good music here and a lot of music I haven't heard in a very long time. Yeah, I was concerned at first when you suggested this episode, I wouldn't be able to find 12 songs. I ended up finding like 30 to pick from. Right. Because you forget about the instrumentals. And like I, I realized, I and mean, I guess I knew this, but I realized that in the in the 60s, there were a lot of instrumentals that, that hit. Oh, countless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just there was a, time, a lot of the surf rock music and um, uh, other stuff as well. Well, you know, we could have, we easily could do an entire mixtape of surf rock music yeah right and and without words no less i mean we we've already used wipeout uh we did that first season so that that was uh a no-go but pipeline and bongo rock and the ventures well yeah the ventures themselves walk don't run and well that's one i want i wanted to consider but uh, there's another one popping up and i didn't want to have two surf rock tunes right and my, my dad who's staying with me for a few weeks here this summer was a huge ventures fan so he'll never forgive me for not going with the ventures but uh, yeah, yeah, the surf rock, we could do an entire entire episode on oh, that. Oh, easily, yeah. But um, no, I and you know, I, I thought about going classical for a while. I thought about just putting on Hooked on Classics. Oh, yeah. I, I, I had that I record. I came had that. real close. Parts one and two, it's about a 13-minute uh, collection, I think, of, of classical music and a montage, but it has that drive. It has a backbeat beat. to it. Yeah. I had an entire LP. Did, did you have the album? Yeah, the entire LP. The only there were I think two couple singles from that, the one yeah. that everybody knows, but yeah, I had that. K-Tel. Yeah. <laughs> K-Tel Classics, yeah. Um but no, I I I'm really excited about this. Um not not in the way I've been excited about other mixtapes in the past, but this is so unique and so unusual for us anyway that hopefully our our audience will will give it a chance and then I don't know. I'm hoping. It's strange what our audience likes. We look at our numbers and, and certain subjects we think are going to do well don't do as well as ones that we think, oh, this isn't going to really hit, but we'll do it for us. And it happens to be a really popular right? episode. Can't figure that out. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a music first guy. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, to try to explain that, even though I don't always pay attention to the lyrics, I still respect that, that lead vocal, that main vocal um, as an instrument. And as you, you know, of course, um, differently vocalists have different character in their voices and, and they use that instrument in different ways. So even though I'm, I'm a music first guy, I'm not one to just listen to a lot of instrumental music. And I, I mean, I, I just, it, it, it sometimes it's difficult because you're missing that, even if you're not paying attention to what actually is being said, you're, you're missing the most unique instrument of all, which is that human voice, because no two sound exactly alike. But going through this uh, playlist, getting ready for the uh, for this week, I was pretty happy with my choices. Yeah. So, what, what uh, were there were there any stipulations? Uh, what were the criteria that you you selected for this yeah, episode? Pretty simple. I just chose instrumental songs that I love or that I feel had a significant impact on the pop culture of the day. Um, there are a few on here that I wouldn't necessarily listen to on my own, but are very important to Gen X. Okay. 
yeah, I, I pretty much did the same. I um, all of my selections had to be created or, or recorded, I guess. Uh, you know, in that sweet spot of, of sixty-five to eighty, or they had to be in some way relevant to the pop culture uh, that we grew up with. Um, so there were a lot uh, Harlem Nocturne and The Stripper and. Um, sing 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 is probably the greatest example they were they were off the table you know I, I made sure that I did not uh, go too far back there were a few that I wanted to include that I just could not fit like sleepwalk mm-hmm. yeah by Santo and I, I, that is one of the most beautiful and most haunting melodies ever recorded and I just couldn't fit it in um, but on the whole it, it's yeah I mean it, this is a virtual who's who of uh Music from Gen X without lyrics, so it's 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 going to be an interesting episode. I also stayed away from from classical pieces. You know, there was a piece by a shorter piece by Philip Glass, but I didn't include that. I stayed away from more modern music. Um, there's a band called Krungbin that I really really dig. I thought you'd include them. You you had introduced them to me when we when right, we got right. to see. Uh, Elton John, and I, I'm sure you'd include that. But I wanted to keep it in that Gen X, you know, realm. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll bring that up when we when we uh, go. Are we going to do another episode of, of introducing uh, Gen Xers to, to new music episodes? Or oh, not? the Uncharted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured we'd end the season that way. Sounds good. So I'll, I'll introduce them then. And I also stayed away for, well, this is kind of a caveat, um, from, from jazz, but if it was a jazz piece that hit the Billboard Top 100 during the Gen X, you know, zone. Right. Um, I, I went with a few of those as well. I, I think you did as well. I did. I, um, th- there were some, there, there was a lot of jazz that I thought about including, uh, starting with Brubeck's Take 5. I really wanted to use Take 5. But that's um, not in the in, in it, the window. Well, it, well, it was recorded in 65, but yeah, I did. Technically, no, it did did not fit. Um, did chart though. Yeah, right. It, it was a top twenty hit. Um, but I, uh, I stayed away from a lot of hard jazz, uh, like Weather Report, Birdland. I really wanted to include that. I didn't. Uh, there are some jazz selections, but they either hit high on the on the Hot One Hundred for me, or they were very integral to the pop culture like like you had just said um i also stayed away from classical not so much classical pieces but classical interpretations like walter murphy's a fifth of beethoven in fact i i don't have a whole lot of disco and disco there was so much disco without words right, right. I, neither one of us has the hustle as an example correct you know um but yeah, I think we were on the same page then. And I'm sorry to disappoint anyone listening. As much as I may have chosen a few selections, like I said, that I wouldn't necessarily listen to on my own, but were pivotal to Gen X, um, I could not get myself to include any Kenny G. So if you're a Kenny G <laughs> fan and you were expecting Kenny G, I'm just going to spoil it right now. There is no Kenny G uh, on side A or side B, so I, I, I apologize, but I really don't. Yeah, No, I, um, <laughs> I, I have I'm sure he's a very nice guy, but his brand of jazz just was a little bit too... Too light for me. Correct. I, I do not have Kenny G either, um, and I'm not losing any sleep over it. <laughs> so, um, oh, who would want Kenny G? I, I, but, but, it, but it was, I mean, it, it was huge. It was. That but Songbird I, song was huge. It was, but you know, I still, to this day, I don't know anybody that ever listened to it personally, unless it was a guilty pleasure. Probably our parents. They, well, perhaps. I'm the just boomers. Thinking, the yeah. boomers liked it. I'm just saying, Gen Xers, unless it was a guilty pleasure and they were yeah. hiding behind locked doors, I know nobody who ever 
purchased a Kenny G. Yeah, album. You, you can't even say it's a guilty pleasure. You no, can't, not really. You can't even put that in. That's nah, just so. shameful. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's kick it off. What do you have to start us with? All right, well, I, it doesn't get more cheesy than this. Okay, um, I'm, I'm, this one's for you, Star Wars fans. Uh, welcome to to that moment of galactic disco funk madness. Okay, uh, Miko and the Star Wars theme Cantina Band. This actually hit number one. Did it really? It hit number one on the Hot 100 in 1977. It's from the album Music Inspired by Star Wars and Other Galactic Funk. Don't confuse Miko with Nico of Velvet Underground fame. Two very, very different, different things. <laughs> very uh, different. Miko goes by the real name of Domenico Minardo, and he is both a band leader and a record producer. Uh, along with this composition, he, I guess he also released similar pieces based on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Wizard of Oz, a number of blockbuster films, actually. So, so Lucasfilm was okay with this. Yeah, yeah. I, it, well, it had to be. I mean... And I could see Disney licensing this. Correct. Back then, it would have been, you know, Lucasfilm or, or John Williams. I'm not sure if John Williams has uh, any say over it. I, you know, I don't know. But, I mean, nonetheless, he had to have gotten permission because he has actual sounds and, and sound effects from the, the films, which would well, Of course, be, things were a little bit looser back then. Well, and, and maybe they just thought, well, if we get get sued we get sued i don't know perhaps i don't know um anyway you, you had to wonder what got into people in 77 I mean, everything had to have a disco song version and this is perhaps the most impressive attempt it is a tiring seven minutes <laughs> in duration and uh perhaps most impressive um the album version is a full 15 minutes i did not include the album version i, I didn't know if i could actually do that to our listeners but yeah it samples wookies growling r2 beeping i mean in fact r2 even has his own solo in this particular song um however in retrospect it may seem to some as second in cheesiness only to the star wars christmas special i suppose uh, which I love and try to refer to every chance I can work it. I out. don't know. I had the LP of Christmas in the Stars. I did too. So yeah. that's right up there with with it. With, with Bon Jovi, no less. <laughs> right. probably something he's tried to forget about the rest of his uh, career. Um, but if you lived through the late seventies, you, you doubtless flashed back to roller disco uh, when when listening to to this. Um, Fans with a keen ear, you'll notice that many of the musical elite motifs for each of the major characters are covered in the song as well. Uh, if you don't know what a lead motif is, it's it's a little musical snippet attached to characters uh, in media. So, Hail to the Chief, for instance, might be considered the president's lead motif. Uh, you know, in Star Wars, the Imperial March, for example, plays whenever Darth Vader's part in the story comes up. Um, they're they're 
is also Luke's theme and Leia's theme. All of them are present in this particular. There's Obi Wan. Oh yeah, has a theme now yes, in the exactly. new series. Yeah. Um, one more bit of trivia: the Cantina theme. Okay, actually has its own name. I never knew this. The Cantina theme is actually called. Um, where is it? Figure and Dan and Fig- the, Figure and Dan's the name of the band. Right. Right. Um, yeah, Figure and Dan and the Moto Nose is the name of the band. Where is this? That is hilarious. I took notes <laughs> saying that it has its own name that I did not include. It's obviously very forgetful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, oh, there it is. It's called Mad About Me. The actual cantina theme is called Mad About Me, according to Wikipedia. Okay, so I'm, I'm taking... Well, that's a pretty good source. Yeah, I'm taking Wikipedia at its word. Mad About Me is actually the name of the cantina theme. Um, and... You know, Miko, I guess he was enthralled with John Williams' main title theme when he first saw Star Wars on opening day in 77. He did not think that the London Symphony Orchestra's performance had the makings of a Billboard hit, which uh, he was very wrong because we could have used the Star Wars main title for this episode. It actually peaked on the Hot 100 at number 10. Star Wars theme was a top 10 hit. But after seeing the movie 10 more times, he contacted Casablanca Records with his idea for a disco treatment that incorporated the main musical themes, and the force was strong with Miko, because the label agreed to his concept without hearing any of the music at all. And uh, due to Star Wars' massive popularity, this soared up the charts. Number one, number one hit. 1977. We forgot about the Donnie Marie um, Star Wars debacle. Oh, yes. As oh. well. They were really loose with, with, with the branding. I'm surprised that Lucas was so... Well, you know... Of course, he didn't own the property at the time. It was 20th Century Fox. Right. So. But, but again, they had to have had permission because the characters were on the show. Yeah, they were. I and, mean, you know, Peter Mayhew was there as were... Uh, I don't think... I don't think the three... No, because Donnie and Marie played Luke, Luke and Luke Leia. Leia. Yeah, but um, no, Chewie was there. R2, the C-3PO, yeah. 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 Uh, Donnie, that's bringing back painful we, we memories. We could do a whole episode pleasures. on just John Williams' we, compositions. We could, and it would actually be a fantastic mixtape, quite frankly. Did you ever catch, um, and I'd love to you know, say that I caught this on my own, but I didn't, but going back after reading this, it's true, in the prequels, um, in, in episode three at the very end, when Obi-Wan is delivering... Uh, baby Luke to um, uh, Tatooine. Right. There's a little tiny, but one one or two measure uh, blip of of Harry Potter that's mixed in. Really? Yeah. Just the beginning of that theme, that little chimey theme. Because if you think about it, right, it's very similar to Harry Potter when young Harry is being delivered to his aunt and uncle Correct. to be protected from Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah. Go back huh. and listen to that. Yeah. I, it's kind of cool. That is cool. I, I never would have guessed that Williams would have. Done that. That's yeah, it's, it's not enough necessarily to, to stand out, but if you listen carefully, it's, it's there. Yeah. Have, have you watched Obi-Wan yet? I have. I have. I, I've not seen it. I've, I haven't had a chance yet, so no spoilers, but is it good? Oh, I, I think it's solid. Now, of course, everybody's talking about the chase scene online, which is true. It was, it was pretty bad. I mean, and I'm, I'm pretty sure someone by now has put the Benny Hill theme music to the chase scene, and you'll know when you see the chase scene. Okay. Um, it, it, it's really bad. I, I, you and I could have choreographed a better chase scene in about five minutes. Really? So I'm not sure why, what happened there. The quality control really broke down. Kevin Feig really dropped the bomb on dropped this Dropped the bomb there. But uh, uh, the, the rest, though, I think is, is very solid. And, and they said limited series. So I'm wondering if this is just going to be one season. Um, but oh. it's good. I, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, let's, again, I wish they would have had the technology back during the pre I still you know when I go back and I watch the prequels they're not as bad as I always think they are 
but I've I've warmed to them. Yeah, it, it's just nice now with their use of LCD screens instead of green screen. You know, for for a lot of the backgrounds, they're just really able to seamlessly create this world in a way that Lucas never could before. Right. Um, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to it. I just I have not had a chance to sit down since it debuted on Friday. Um, Stranger Things, same thing. I haven't had a chance to watch Stranger Things. We're about two or three episodes of that. My son's watched it all. He said it's the best. He believes it's the best of all. all Yeah, I'm behind on both. But um, no, I'm looking forward to it, though. Star Wars fans, though, they complain about everything. Sure. You know, they they just do. Um, Because, for instance, Book of Boba Fett, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I did. I liked it, even though yeah, I it mean, was really just Mandalorian, you know, what, 2.5. It really was, yeah. Right. Once you get to episode five and Mando returns, it's it's like they dropped the entire series. But um, nonetheless, I'm, I'm all about fan service. So a lot of people, a lot of critics complain about it. I'm, I'm, I want to see oh, I love fan service. That. So, all right, you're number one. What do you all got? Right. Well, I'm going to start with Speed of Life by David Bowie. Okay. And that's from the 1977 album, Low. into music you, you, you'll know most of this but a lot of people don't a lot of people that haven't necessarily followed Bowie's career or followed new wave music um, Low is the first of three albums which now is kind of referred to as the Berlin Trilogy uh, David Bowie and, and Iggy Pomp were kind of <clears throat> drying out over in France uh, around this time and they started getting into in fact Bowie produced Iggy Pop's first record I believe and so they're working together, and they were listening to a lot of, of German experimental music, like uh, Kraftwerk or Kraftwerk, however it's <laughs> correctly pronounced. Right. And, you know, you go back and you listen to Low today, and it doesn't sound necessarily that revolutionary. But if you were in ni- to listen to this, if you put yourself in 1977 and you listen to this record, it's, you know, excuse the cliche, way ahead of its time. And it was mainly Brian, Brian Eno and Bowie working together, pulling in this electronic music, incorporating it into David Bowie's pop style, his rock style. And they created an album which, you know, at the time, I mean, I believe it was RCA, didn't even want to initially release it because they felt it was going to be a commercial flop. Huh. It actually did, did fairly well. The critics were a bit divided at the time, usually with anything that's ahead of its time. Right. But now people look back and say it is one of the most influential records ever made in the rock era. 
um, you know, bands, post-punk bands like Joy Division, Cure, Trent Reznor, call it one of the main influences in, in their, you know, not, not only in their youth and listening to th- these records and low uh, particularly, but then in their own music later on. In fact, uh, even Philip Glass, you know, I'm a big fan of Philip Glass. Right. In 1992, he composed um, three symphonies based on these records, and the first one's called The Low Symphony. Really? And so he, um, and I believe he worked, he might have worked, I don't know this for sure, if he worked with Brian Eno on that project or not, but he basically took the themes from this record and made a symphony out of it. So he, it, it doesn't... It, it's weird. You listen to it and you can hear the themes, but it's still very different. It's not like a, you know, a note for note remake uh, symphonically or anything like that. So, okay. yeah, it's really, really interesting. But, yeah, um, we've talked a lot recently about Kratwerk. And, of course, they were just inducted in the Rock Hall. And they, the fact that not only did they influence post-punk and new wave, but I didn't realize this until we saw a lot of the presenters talk about uh, hip-hop. You know, I'm not a huge hip-hop fan. Not right. that I don't like hip-hop. I just I, I'm not immersed in that world. To know that, you know, in, in New York, in the early 80s, that DJs were just going through, you know, these record stores looking for cool samples, and they discovered Kraftwerk, and that became a huge influence. So not only did they influence post-punk, but they were a huge influence on hip-hop. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. I didn't realize the connection to hip-hop was so strong with with Kraftwerk. I, um, and Bowie, you know, I... I really, really enjoy Bowie's music, but I only know, I I, I know the singles, you know. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not well versed in his back catalog or his deep cuts at all, so I had never heard this. Um, but it, it's, it is a rocking tune. I it, was when well, you really have to. This is one of those you have to listen to the entire album. So it's almost unfair. To, by the way, I did say it was Speed of Life, right? Yeah, that's that's what kicks off the record. But really, it is one of those you have to listen to in its entirety. It's almost like a symphony, which makes sense if Philip Glass adapted it. So you're only getting part of the picture. But I chose it because it, 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 it launches it launches the record. Um, it's a really optimistic, um, you know, a lot more optimistic than, than Joy Division or a lot of stuff that would come later. Um, very, um, it's hard, just hard to explain. I mean, you have the guitar, you have the rock there. It's very present. It's a rock song. But then you have the synthesizer and the keyboard and a lot of the sampling and the Brian Eno stuff come in there. And you can tell, oh, there's that new wave sound, you know, germinating. And so it's just a really interesting track. And, and even though it's not as popular and, and a lot of people don't know it, I wanted to kick it off with this because, you know, we're talking instrumentals. And, um, and, and I was just hoping to kind of get people into these records, these, these, the, the Berlin trilogy. Yeah. Well, now I'm definitely going to have to check it out. I had no idea that it was just a movement, if you will, from a larger you know, full-length yeah. full album, you know, symphony. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so. there are more instrumentals on the record, and, and some of them are more like fragments, and some of them are, are, are fleshed out. And, and there were a couple singles off the record, too. Sound and Vision was one of the singles off the record. Um, but it just, it, it, it works as a whole. And, okay. and, 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 you know, of course, we can't go back to 1977 and listen to it for the first time, but I, I would just can kind of imagine... Um, how different it would have sounded and how experimental it would have sounded back then, even though today it, it doesn't sound that experimental. Right. No, very cool. All right, you're okay. up. Okay, well, I was very, very careful because there there were a lot of TV themes that charted that I wanted to, to use, I contemplated using because I was trying to, we, we generally do not repeat songs. I mean, we're, we're in season. We haven't yet. No, we're in season. Well, we did once really one time white and nerdy you used it for the white episode and then we made the exception for the weird out oh, we? okay. yeah uh, but that was the only time that we have repeated songs and 
you know, I, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, is it cheating? Uh, cheating, like like it's hard. <laughs> we like make the rules. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we make the rules. We can break them. <laughs> but I, I was thinking to myself, you know, all these TV themes, because we did, you know, a, a trilogy of, of television themes in our first season. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but we were using 20 to 30 second clips as they were used for the TV show, not for the full length songs themselves that may have charted. Because there were a few that theme from theme from SWAT, theme from Rockford Files, um, theme from Hill Street Blues. I was thinking about using these, and I, I in the end I did not. But there was one TV theme that conspicuously we even we even kind of uh, joked that you know we might be going to hell for not including this at the time that we did the the, the remote control episodes. There's one theme that we did not include, and this is the perfect time to. To have it represent is it Jan uh, Hammer? It is Jan Hammer. Uh, <laughs> Jan 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 Hammer is it Hammer? Jan Hammer. Jan Hammer. I, 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 yeah, I have no idea. I just call him Jan Hammer. So I, I don't <laughs> do not know. Uh, but I am talking about the Miami Vice theme, which we did not include in the the remote control episodes. And oh my God, Miami Vice that that soundtrack that theme song alone was huge. You know? I had the LP. Did you have the LP? Yeah, I, I with Phil Collins yeah, and, still and do. Glenn yeah. Fry. Still have it. Yeah, at 1985, uh, it was released. This again was a number one song. Hit number one on Billboard. We, we remember it now for the fashion. We remember it uh, for a number of things. But musically, it was wildly popular and influential. It, it just was. Um, the Miami Vice theme, it was the last instrumental song to reach number one on the U.S. Hot 100 until Harlem Shake by Bauer. Do you remember Harlem Shake a few Yeah, years I can't ago? believe that charted. A Harlem Shake? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was the number one hit. That's, that's the bigger surprise. Yeah, that hit number one as well. Yikes. But Miami Vice... That's one of the signs of the apocalypse. Anyway. Perhaps, yeah. But until Harlem Shake, this was the very last instrumental song to reach number one. This theme, it, it won the 1985 Grammy Award for Best Pop Instrumental Performance and Best Instrumental Composition for Jan Hammer, Jan Hama, whatever you choose to call him. Um but yeah, Miami Vice, it, it was just a huge musical impact. I, you want to talk about that soundtrack. Not only was this theme song a number one hit, but it featured the two Glenn Fry songs written specifically for the show. Smuggler's Blues. That was one. Um, gosh, um, You Belong in the City? There, you Belong to the City. You Belong to the City, yeah. Yep. That was number two. It had the two established hits uh, used in the first season in the air tonight 
and Better Be Good to Me. And it topped the U.S. Albums Chart for 11 weeks in 85, giving it the longest run at the top of any TV soundtrack in history. So, you know, this, I, I had to include this. It, I, I can't say that I was a huge fan of the song. Perhaps, you know, in my mind, I, I I just remember the bikini babes from the uh, what, right from the intro. Right. That was the best part well, of the no, intro. I, visually, for like twelve-year-old me. Right. No, I loved the intro. You know, <laughs> visually watching the show, I I really didn't watch the show that often. It, isn't it interesting? I don't hear it. Is it streaming? I don't hear people talking about it. It's not like it's had a, a a retro comeback where all of a sudden people are streaming old episodes. It's weird. It it was so hugely popular. But unlike like Twin Peaks, for instance, what was popular right. at the time and it had a resurgence. Um, you had you don't hear about that with my no, I. I can't remember the Maybe last Maybe it doesn't time. hold up very well. I, I don't know. I've, I've not gone back. I I didn't watch the show regularly uh, when it uh, was on, you know, on on the, what was it, NBC? I think it was NBC, yeah. Yeah, I, I was not a regular viewer of the show. Um, but yeah, I can't remember the last time I heard anyone discuss Miami Vice. I mean, it just, it just seemingly vanished. Right. And, and has stayed. Plus, uh, it created one of the, the biggest cliches of the 80s. I don't know anybody that wore a white sports jacket with the uh, arm sleeves uh, pulled up and a pink T-shirt underneath. <laughs> right. And yet you see so many, you know, uh, people today trying to recreate the 80s, kind of like with the leather jackets in the 50s. Right. Um, I think kids today think that's how we all dress back then. Oh, yeah. I would. <laughs> well, anytime you have any 80s nostalgia or any kind of retro anything, really, I mean, for the 80s. That is not the 80s that any right. You know what we wore in the 80s? We wore jeans and a t-shirt. That's right. what we wore and in the 80s. And that's what we still wear today. Right, exactly. <laughs> Nothing has changed. In fact, you know what they wore in the 50s? Jeans, jeans and, and a t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fashion, I get a kick out of it. Anyway, the album, one last note, it was certified as four times platinum, which if you, if you understand record sales, folks, four times platinum, that is, that is through the roof. Um, it had sales of over four million in America alone, making it by far the best-selling TV soundtrack to that point. Only one uh, TV soundtrack has beaten the Miami Vice album. One TV soundtrack has beaten Miami. Vice. I don't know if you'll get this one. Okay, go ahead. Disney's 2006 High School Musical. Oh well, that makes sense. That yep. was huge. Yeah, I no, it, it that, makes sense. I just that I, fits in the millennial uh, it, category. Exactly. I just I knew that wasn't the direction you were right. thinking. So. Um, but it was good. I thought it was a quality piece of entertainment. My, right. My kids loved it, and I didn't mind watching it with them. Yeah. But no, this soundtrack, it ushered in a new era of TV shows spinning off albums. And uh, the previous compilation from a TV series to hit number one, this is what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah. Um, the, the previous compilation from a TV series to hit number one was the music from Peter Gunn in, mm, yeah, in 1959. Yeah. And we featured that one. Right. Yeah. So it had been 26 years uh, since the last time that that had happened. But no, I I, I can't say that I was a huge fan of the, of the, the track. Um, but if we're talking Gen X, I mean, for that for that very brief moment uh, in, in 85, this song was everywhere. Yep. And it just felt right to, to include it. So there is the TV represent, uh, representation. The only the only TV theme we've included. Yeah, yeah. So. We have a couple movies coming up. Right, yeah. correct. All right. Well, I'm going to go into um, hard rock category, which isn't a place I usually spend a lot of time. But I would really be amiss if I did not talk about Eruption by Van Halen. Yeah. <laughs> 
from 1978 from their debut album, Van Halen, uh, considered by many to be one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. Um, it's just, it, it, it's not only just a great guitar solo, but it's notable because um, Eddie, Eddie Van Halen didn't invent the, the, the tapping uh, method um, when you actually tap up on the uh, on the neck of the guitar to kind of get a, the, the ringing chiming right. sound, and of course there's a lot of amplifiers and, and, and effects put on. But uh, the double tapping, he, he used both hands to tap, and he was able to do it so well and so fast that it really just inspired a whole generation of, of rock guitarists after that. Um, there was nothing like that before Eddie Van Halen, and this was that first song that really demonstrated that technique. Um, Radio stations often play this, um, kind of like the, the Queen uh, with We Will Rock You into, you know, um, We Are the Champions or Elton John's Funeral for a Friend that goes into Love Lies Bleeding. They often play this because on the album, it goes into their Kinks cover of You Really Got Me. Right. So we're not going to do that because it's instrumentals. We're just going to play Eruption and it fits nicely. It doesn't, it doesn't bleed into the next track, so we're able to separate it. But um Pop culture critic Chuck Klosterman. Um, have you read his stuff? He's got several books. That he's really, really good. From Vulture.com. I've I've not read any of his works, but I've, I've read some of his. I would love to have him as a guest. He's like Mr. Oh. Gen X Media. The yeah, guy's no, he, the guy's brilliant. Uh, he declared it the greatest Van Halen track of all time. That's a bold statement. I'm, that, I'm sure that, a lot of Van Halen fans would argue with him on yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's, that's. And I'm not sure if that's based on just the just the track alone or if it, the influence it had and so forth. Um, that's and, very bold. And I, and I used to think, and, and I'm I'm wrong because I looked it up, but I, and I haven't watched Back to the Future in a while. But I was thinking this was the song that Marty McFly plays when he hooks up the Walkman and puts on the radiation suit to make his uh, father in the past believe <sighs> um, in aliens. It, but it actually was a track by it was by Eddie Van Halen, but it was he composed it, an original piece for oh, the it, movie. It was an original, right? Okay. Right. Yeah, I was going to say I, I know it was Van Halen because they show Marty it, putting the cassette. Yeah, it into says Eddie Walkman. Van Halen on right. the, on the tape. And I would, just, for whatever reason, remember when I watched the movie thinking it was Eruption, but it's not. But, you know, it was a similar type of thing. So, yeah. um, Eddie, of course, has passed, uh, but his uh, style of uh, playing just, like I said, just changed a whole generation of guitar players. And uh, it would be amiss if we did not include this. Right. Well, you know, you you brought up Elton John. I, I wish that Funeral for, for a Friend did not bleed into... Uh, Love lies bleeding because yeah, I, right, I, right. I oh yeah, yeah I would have used true. I would have used funeral for a friend on this episode without question, um, but but you're right. I mean, eruption is nice. It 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 has that that break between the songs, and frankly, it, it is. It's one of the greatest guitar solos ever recorded. So. I would have chosen funeral for a friend as in a heartbeat if it oh, hadn't have yeah. if it would have been easier to put on a mixtape. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. Right. Um, but no, I. It, I I was not surprised at all when I saw this uh, on your list, and I had thought about including it myself. Um, it was a loss. It was a huge loss uh, when Eddie Van Halen passed recently. His son plays now. I've I was going to say, TikTok. yeah, his son Wolfgang. Yep. Uh, it, he is he is pretty incredible. Right. Um, I've not I've heard a, f a couple of his songs. I, I've not purchased the album. Uh, I know that he has an album that came out not too long ago that critics have hailed as, as a masterpiece, but I, I've not heard it. Um, but yeah it, and speaking of TikTok by the way I'll use this time to plug uh, the fact go, that go the next mixtape yeah. is now on TikTok I know it's not a very Gen X thing but either is Facebook right let's face it we're, well, yeah. we're using modern tools to, to try to um, spread our brand around the world but I check out our Gen X mixtape TikTok I might argue about Gen we we chased all the millennials. Away. That's true. We made F it Facebook. Our own. Facebook belongs. It wasn't to of Gen, Gen X, X but we've we we took it hostage and we're not yeah. letting go. I was going to say Facebook is, <laughs> I mean, because I think about my students, of course, and now you know they would run screaming from the idea of having a Facebook profile, but I don't know a Gen Xer who doesn't. So correct. 
Um, but yeah, TikTok. Uh, yeah, Dave's been kind of showing me how this works. It's the one social media platform I know nothing about. It's the one so. social media platform that wastes most of my time. <laughs> <laughs> it's dangerous. It's like crack. Be careful. Okay. I mean, once the algorithm figures you out and every single video is of interest to you, you know, yeah, be careful. Fair warning. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, my number three. Uh, this is a jazz piece. I didn't say I had no jazz. I just said I, I was very careful with the jazz that I picked. And this one, uh, it did hit the Hot 100. It, it peaked at number 71, which still is not, uh, man, that, that's pretty impressive because it is a jazz piece. Jazz, of course, does not, it, it doesn't chart. We've talked about that on the on prior episodes uh, of the podcast. This is Herbie Hancock. And the name of the song is Rocket. You don't know who Herbie Hancock is. Uh, he is a renowned jazz musician. He actually joined Miles Davis's band in '63, and Davis taught Hancock the importance of experimentation and about how you can achieve excellent results by letting the people working with you experiment as well. And you know, while jazz purists wanted no part in Rocket because this is an electro, you know, experiment really. I mean, from start to finish, he was throwing everything uh, at this song and just trying to see what would stick, you know. Um, even though jazz purists were not fans, it created a fresh new sound. Thanks in part to the production of Bill Laswell and the turntable work of Graham Mixer D-S-T, uh, who, you know, each got the green light from Hancock to do their thing. Um, this was the first song to feature scratching. Very first one. Uh, before the hip-hop community even embraced it. This, this it really? Even time. in some of the late 70s hip-hop, like Rapper's Delight, they didn't didn't scratch, huh? Yeah, this is the very first one. And and for anyone not familiar with hip-hop, it was the first time that they heard the sounds of a record being manipulated on a turntable to the beat. I should say it's the very first song to, to chart. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, 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 let me, let me I stand corrected. The very first song um, to feature scratching that charted. Um, the hip-hop, hip-hop community had already been doing sure, it, sure. But, but it had not. Well, that's the thing about Herbie Hancock. Like you said, a renowned jazz musician, but he's bringing in elements now of the street culture of the time. Exactly. He's bringing in the synth, the scratch. I mean, it was a very contemporary jazz tune. Right. I didn't even consider it that. I remember watching on MTV. Remember the video? Yeah. I'm sure you're going to talk yeah. about that. But at the time, as a kid, I didn't see that as a jazz piece. It was just kind of a quirky, synthesized piece, you know? Yeah. But no, scratching, I mean, if, if you know, in the 80s, unless you were a part of that culture, you know, music listeners had, had not really 
been introduced to this manipulation of the turntable to the beat. I mean, it was it was funky and it was it was very new sounding, very fresh to anyone who was not a part of that culture, immersed in that culture. Uh, the technique was pioneered by the DJs Grandmaster Flash and Grand Wizard Theodore, mm-hmm. and they performed throughout New York, of course. Um, the video, you brought up the video. Yes, yes. The video, it, it featured a host of animated mannequins. And it was, <laughs> it was one of the I most... I forget the name of the artist. Do you have the name of the artist that... It was like, uh, a, it was like a performance artist, I think, that used robotics in his... Right. I'm, I'm trying but to... Anyway, it's fine. Yeah. I was just... I couldn't um, remember his name. Yeah, I, I, it might be in here. I'm, I'm taking a look. I don't remember. Um, nonetheless, it was one of the most innovative uh, music videos of the era. And I remember I was more fascinated by the video than I was the, the song. The song, it was catchy. I mean, I remember at 83 seeing the video and the, the song was, you know, it, it was. It was kind of infectious. But that video, it just kind of blew me away because nothing in the video made a lick of sense to, to 10-year-old me. Right, you know? right. I'm just sitting here trying to figure out. It was out almost what was, scary. I was pretty disturbed it was, by it, actually. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I went back to watch it again. I hadn't seen the video in, in years. And you know what immediately just came to mind? was Toy Story Sid Phillips. Oh, yeah. And all of his little toy creations, you know? Because you watch the video now and all these mannequins, the pieces and parts and how they're they're put together in a very Frankenstein. Are there home appliances too? I, I, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I haven't watched it since the eighties. So. Yeah, and it's a lot of stop motion uh, yeah. animation as well. But yeah, I, I was. I was watching the video. And I'm like, this is this is like walking into Sid's bedroom, <laughs> you know. Um, but the video was very popular on MTV. It won five music video awards in '84: best art direction, best concept, best editing, best special effects, and most experimental video. And I would say even of more importance, along with Michael Jackson and Prince, Hancock was one of the first black artists to get significant play on MTV, but he barely appears in the video. Right. Because, uh, I mean, Michael Jackson was the one that broke the color barrier. Exactly, right? yeah. Um, and what year was this? This was... Um, 83. Okay, so it's the same time. Same, same actually, time. after, in 82, I think, is when Thriller Correct. dropped. Yeah, yeah, Billie Jean would have been 82. Um, but yeah, the video, it was directed by Kevin Godley and uh, Law Cream, who also made the police video for Every Breath You Take. Uh, their directive was to get Hancock played on MTV. And it was a daunting task, considering the network's reluctance to play black artists. Even more daunting, because he was a jazz artist. Uh, but keeping the artist out of the video was a way to take the race factor out of it. And it... That's worked. unfortunate. It was, yeah. That, that's a very dark... Uh, kind of a stain on the, the history of the music video network. Um, in America, most people heard the song on MTV, though. It, it wasn't a big radio hit. Uh, Hancock wasn't on the radar, radar program directors outside of jazz formats. So, the, And the song was far too unusual for most top 40 stations. So it, it was the video that, that kind of introduced a new generation to... Well, I remember yeah, talking about it on the playground. I remember that was a song. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't say I ever talked about it on the playground, but I... Um, Actually, I think I might have had a record. It was like a breakdance, <laughs> one of those records that came with a fold-out that showed you how to break dance. Gotcha. And okay. I had a bunch of different, like, remixes, like um, Grandmaster Flash was on there, uh, Blondie was remixed. Uh, but anyway, there I think Rocket was on that, so I had it. You know, it's interesting you bring up breakdancing, because Hancock, um, he was playing a guitar, Um and and he performed the song on the Grammy telecast in 84, okay? And he shared the stage, I remember this, with mannequins and props from the video. And in a clever twist, some of the mannequins turned out to be real people. Oh, and that's creepy. Yeah, they came to the front of the stage and they did some impressive breakdancing as Hancock was 
playing the song uh, in his Grammy performance, um, which actually, I, I'd have to check. I don't know if this is true or not, but my guess is this was the first time that scratching or breakdancing, either one, was featured in a Grammy performance. Yeah, it could be. I, I, I'd be willing to bet anything that that's true. Yeah. But... Unless we count the moonwalk uh, from Michael Jackson, was that the Grammys or was that a, a special? Oh, it might have been a. Boy. It might have been a TV special where it, that first appeared, but I'm sure he performed it also in the Grammys at some point. Hey, oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah, I'll have to go back and watch that that Grammy from Herbie Hancock that performance because that sounds interesting. Yeah. I'm, All right. Yep. Your turn. All right. Well, again, you know, I don't talk a lot about hard rock, and now I'm actually going to talk about metal, which I, I, I talk about even less. Um, I've made the distinction very, very many times uh, on this the show that I see a big difference between true metal and, and hair bands, okay? And so where I didn't get into the hair bands like Poison and Motley Crue and, and Rat, um, I'd also wasn't a fan of metal, but I at least had a respect for it, especially Metallica. I remember in high school, Metallica, I, I started seeing Metallica shirts and um, started to, you know, listen here or there. And I knew it was just, it was a lot different than the hairband stuff. And I really kind of had a respect for it. And then in college, you know, I had some friends that were, were fans and uh, I listened to more of it. And I still don't listen to Metallica very often. But when I do, I think, why don't I listen to more Metallica? Like, it's really, <laughs> really solid stuff. And they have a couple instrumentals. One's uh, Orion, which I considered using. Right. But I instead chose to go with the call of Cthulhu because we're both kind of Lovecraft fans and why not, right? (laughs) We could talk a little bit about this song. came out in 1984 from the album Ride the Lightning. And it was actually co-written by Dave Mustaine, who was part of Metallica. A lot of people forget that. Yeah, they kicked him out of the band because he had yeah. some substance abuse problems and went on, of course, to form Megadeth. Um, but he does not perform on this track. You know, he co-wrote it, but he was gone before they actually laid it down in the studio. Um, but like I said, it was inspired by Lovecraft's greatest monster, Cthulhu, which I'm not even allowed, shouldn't even say, because, you know, when you say his name, you bring the monster uh, Close, uh, closer to you. Yeah, according, to, yeah, according to Lovecraft's story, anyway. And th- and that's one of the reasons why you know Metallica spells it K T U L U, which is different than the traditional spelling of of C T H U L H U. Right. And there was some debate as to why they misspelled it. Um, one was there was actually kind of debate on on. I mean, I've always said Cthulhu, um, but some people do say Cthulhu. And so some people thought that they were phonetically spelling it to correct people's mispronunciation. But there's also, if you go back and you read, watch some YouTube videos on, on Lovecraft scholars, there's a whole other pronunciation that they insist that we're all, we're getting it wrong. I don't even remember how to pronounce it, but who knows, right? But 
I, you know, other people think they, they chose this spelling for the same reason that you're not supposed to say the name and you're not supposed to write the name. And so they misspelled it on purpose as to not bring the curse upon themselves. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the original title of the song was When Hell Freezes Over. I didn't know that. They did not want to use that name, though, because they were trying at the time to distinguish themselves from other metal bands that were using satanic imagery in the right. music, right? Yeah. And they didn't want to be lumped into the, the, you know, the Dio and Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden type stuff. And so they chose to change it to uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, th- this is just an epic. It's about eight minutes long. Um, you know, metal is, has a certain classical com- uh, composition to it. It's weird to think, you know, to compare metal to classical music, but really it does have movements and it has, has different, you know, refrains that oh, yeah. re- 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 reprises throughout. And just the, the, the harmonic guitars in this and the way that it drives and it, it just winds and bends throughout. It's just an epic listen. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Making that connect structurally, they're very similar. And into progressive rock too. I mean, progressive rock, oh, classical—they're all, yeah. you know, in that same. They sound very different, but in the composition of the music, um, yep. I think very unappreciated to people who are not metal fans. Now, my son was a metal fan in high school. He still likes it, but he was—he was a very much a metalhead and, and plays guitar himself. And in fact, that's how he learned to play guitar. His guitar teacher was very, very wise. Um, and instead of, you know, giving him boring scales, scales are important, right? And eventually my son would learn those. But I think he took a song from Metallica. It might have been Master of Puppets. And, mm-hmm. he, and he took that song and he broke it apart into different sections and then taught my son those different sections. And so he was able to learn how to not only play one of his favorite songs, but learn all the different basics he needed to kind of launch from there. It's so, kind of impressive. Yeah, yeah. Guitar yeah. lessons starting with Master of Puppets. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty, uh, <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. So I have a great appreciation for it, even though I don't listen to it as much as I, as I probably should. Right. Now, I... I I didn't even consider metal for this episode. So I mean, when I when I saw it on your list, I, I was um, pleasantly surprised. I, I you you were trying, I know, very hard to try and pull from all genres. Yes. Um, when making your list, I wasn't thinking in that. I think my list is eclectic, but I wasn't going for anything quite so diverse. Even though I I ended up being pretty pretty diverse myself. Um, but yeah, metal I hadn't even considered. So. And there are a lot of different metal instrumentals I could have chosen. But oh, oh, I wanted yeah, to. Plenty. I mean, Metallica is a Gen X band, as, as most of the early metal bands were, of course. But right. this was one that I just I felt was was strong. I do want to throw this out there yeah. I, because I am a fan of Lovecraft's stories, right? But Lovecraft was a horrible human being. Yeah. Oh, yes. Like, of course. I, I mean, I, I'm not yeah. heaping praise on him oh, as an individual. Yeah, no, we're no, talking no. about his his world. Agreed. Yeah. I know. I just wanted to. You yeah. know. And did you watch the HBO special that tried to write that somewhat? Yeah, um, the special or the series? Our series, our Love, series. Lovecraft Country. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my, I loved, with an African American cast. I loved that series. I didn't I, finish it. I need to finish. Oh, it. I it, watched the first two or three episodes. It, it is just phenomenal. I um, and then when, when HBO didn't pick it up, I know they did not pick it up for a second season, and I cannot understand why. I mean, it was one, it was one of the most creative and most uh, exhilarating series that I had watched in in a very long time, especially as a horror fan. Right, and HBO just. They dropped it, which broke my heart. Um, but yeah, that they they very intentionally tried to subvert, you know, uh, a lot of Lovecraft's uh, personal. Yeah, no, he was uh, he was a, a racist. Yeah. No, I just want no, no. I, I know, yeah, yeah. I know you know. I'm just, but I want to throw it out there. I, there have been times I've, like uh, I do an in memoriam um, on social media whenever it's the anniversary of the passing of of, a, of Jeff a, Buckley was just posted. Yeah, right. Buckley mm-hmm. was just posted. Um, but I remember when I posted. Um, 
it was the anniversary of Phil Spector's death. Ah, uh, right. And I had I had posted uh, you know the in memoriam for him, and I, there were it was the first time that I saw a lot of uh, our followers on Facebook. They really questioned why sure. I was doing that, and I, I tried to explain myself and, and other other followers on Facebook. They they were right there with me, um, you know. On this podcast, we've always tried to separate the 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 artist from the music the Michael Jackson line like yeah, I call it exactly. that's, that's, it's yeah. difficult for me with Michael Jackson now that we know a lot more about what happened right uh, and there are a number of them R. Kelly would be another huge you, one yeah. but we yeah. generally don't need to include him in a Gen X podcast but um, no I just wanted to for our listeners out there if this is a, a one of your first times listening to us we do we, we do uh, we, we walk a fine line but you know for the podcast for, for our purposes here you know there's a very big difference between celebrating the musical achievements or in this case the literary uh, achievements right, of, right. of a particular uh, person and, and you know actually approving in any way of the the artist uh, him or herself and so, I'll just say too if you're a Stephen King fan or you know either the adaptations on screen or his books themselves you know hugely influenced by by Lovecraft oh yeah the whole you know multiple universe and the monsters out there I mean works like the mist of course the dark tower right. even it I mean there's there's so much Lovecraftian stuff in there so yeah uh, he really was again I, I hate using this phrase I'm gonna use it twice this episode ahead of his time when it came to horror literature yeah very much oh he really was yeah um he was kind of that that writer who kind of uh, bridged, you know, nineteenth century works like like Poe, right, and twentieth century masters like like Stephen King, right. I mean, Lovecraft is right. kind of that. I mean, I'm pretty sure it was seen as this pulp work back then. Oh yeah, and, yeah. and you know, it, it is difficult. Like a lot of my students will attempt to read it, and it's. It, I think they expect Stephen King, and it's not. No, I mean, it's archaic no. It's in the way that it's written. It's, it's very it's time. yeah. It's very hefty. Uh, it, it's it's a pretty daunting task to read Lovecraft honestly okay well moving on uh, it is time for my fourth pick and we are still in the 70s have we left the 70s well Metallica was when Metallica was 84 okay yeah. and well and I just had Rocket so yeah we have we have ventured out of the 70s I'm taking us right back there um, this one was 1974 and again it was a number one hit on the, the Hot 100 this one is by the average white band uh, and it comes from the album AWB. Standard. Another jazz song. No, this one isn't jazz. Uh, I, I, no, Average White Band was a funk band. I know, but this track in particular seems pretty jazzy to me. I mean, there's definitely funk element. There's no doubt about it. Okay. I've, I've just never... I've never to my the ear, horn section feels very jazzy to me. Obviously, the okay. rhythm and the bass and, and the percussion is is very funky. Okay, it, can, it feels like a hybrid. I don't know. I, I can, don't know what I I'm talking about. <laughs> well, no, you know. What? I, I don't. I don't feel like it's jazzy in a traditional jazzy sense, okay. but I feel like it's very jazz influenced funk tune. No, that's that interesting. I, I to my ear, I've never heard heard it that way, but it's maybe because it was on the Swinger soundtrack, and that maybe I associate it with that, that as well. That could be. That could have been. It yeah, as well. that could be. Yeah. Uh, the song we're talking about is "Pick Up the Pieces." we 
spite of their name, AWB, uh, Average White Band, uh, the, the band was that rarest of musical species. It was a band out of Scotland that specialized in R&B funk, primarily. Um, and, and this high-spirited instrumental, uh, the only lyrics, I guess, if you want to, to, you know, if you interpret them as lyrics, uh, being the occasional chanting of the song's title in the track, um, but it, it it is definitely an instrumental piece. This song, uh, Pick Up the Pieces, it was their signature tune. And just a little bit about the average white band. I, I know very little about them, honestly. I, I just wanted to kind of look them up and, and get a frame of reference for myself coming into the episode. I guess they, they formed in 72, and they released their first album titled Show Your Hand the following year. It failed to break through, and, and the group shortened its name to average white band or just AWB because that's what they, they started to use was just the, the acronym. With, I believe, the single has a, or the album has a picture of a, an, a silhouette. Yeah, it's the a silhouette woman. of a woman in her, yeah, <laughs> the W is her, uh, yeah. Her butt, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, AWB, it released the self-titled album in 74 from uh, the album from which this song comes, and um, it became a surprise number one hit in the U.S. and it catapulted. Really, went to number one. Yeah, uh, the album did, as did this song, hmm. and it catapulted AWB to stardom about almost don't, overnight. Really, um, later in '74, I guess their their drummer and founding member uh, Robbie McIntosh he died of a drug overdose, um, and they recruited a, a new drummer. But they, you know, they would have three more top forty albums, or I'm sorry, three more top forty hits in in the mid '70s. But they never were able to repeat the success of this one track uh pick up the pieces it's just it's just a, a jam you know i am it's one of those songs and i hear it a lot i mean if you t- if you listen to the oldie stations and i hate using the term oldies because now of course it's music magic 105.7 uh, yeah, is playing as, 80s music, as an example right? yeah oldie stations they played now 50s are, when we were growing up yeah I, I miss the 50s and 60s as oldies i don't like the idea that <laughs> we we have grown so extinct and ancient in our uh cultural leanings um but nonetheless, uh, yeah, Average White Band, this is a song you'll hear on the radio still today. It's, yeah. it's just a funky groove. Yeah, no, it is funky. I, I mean, I just, I feel like there's an element of jazz. You can, listeners can let me know if I'm really off base on this. Yeah. No, you're not wrong about the brass section. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very much like Chicago. Yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, 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 yeah. Right, so, right, yeah, right. I, can see, I can see where you're going. Okay, thank yeah. you for saving me there. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. Well, we're very chatty today. I mean, you know, we're 50 minutes in here. <laughs> we're about halfway through our list. So we'll, we'll keep it. It's fine. If you're still with us, then, then you're still with us. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. My next one is a classic track. Uh, I could not leave this one off. It's Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. Oh, great. I believe we saw so, them perform this live at the Rock, Hall, the initial Rock Hall show. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Ninety three, ninety four. Oh boy. Ninety five. I think it was ninety five. Ninety five. Yeah. Because yeah, they, really they cool. just yeah, they were breaking the breaking the the dirt. They were laying the foundation yes. for the Rock Hall. Yes.
it's kind of a simple 12 bars 12 bar blues song with a guitar and the Hammond B3 I love a Hammond B3 uh, and they kind of take turns with the spotlight right the the guitar takes a, a verse and then the Hammond takes over and they kind of go back and forth um, contrary to popular belief uh, the song is not inspired by marijuana it is actually uh, inspired by a cat <laughs> <laughs> okay, I knew it was not marijuana influenced, but but a cat. How, yes. how is it? Insp- okay. Well, they, they were, one of the members of the band had a cat, and the cat's name was Green Onions, and it walked. <laughs> I don't know if it had a stroke or something, but it walked in a really weird way, a funky way, and and supposedly the the actual rhythm of the song was was. I don't know, inspired by the walk of this cat. That is wild. And um, and one of the members of the band, it might have been the percussionist, wanted to change it to Funky Onions, but then they thought it sounded too much like a curse word if they called it Funky Onions. <laughs> uh, so they just changed it to Green Onions back to the cat's name. So there you go. Not about marijuana. Interesting. <laughs> the song has appeared in many movies and television shows. Of course, it's on classic rock radio all the time. Great driving song, right? Oh, yeah. Just great groove. Uh, most recently... Probably not. It's probably been recent since. But the most recent I've heard it featured is on the um, season three um, series, uh, Twin Peaks. Of course, season three came out many years after the original first two seasons. uh, It appeared on Showtime. And I just remember, and this isn't really a spoiler because, you know, it's David Lynch and he does David Lynch things. But at the end of one of the episodes, the bar that's featured prominently prominently throughout the season um, you have the the barkeep is sweeping the floor, and you know Green Onions begins to play, and you think this is going to be a nice little, you know, thirty second fade out. No, Lynch plays the entire Green Onion song while this man is sweeping the floor, <laughs> and that ended the episode. Yeah, and I loved it so much because that's David Lynch. Oh yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, I mean that's characteristic of him and everyone. That came out in 1962, so I think that's our first 60s. And that goes into what I was saying about how there were so many instrumentals in the in the, in the the 60s, how yeah. many instrumentals charted. Yeah. And this was in surf rock, you know, this is another example. Oh, right, yeah, this is just classic R&B. And, and, and my dad is here in the studio today watching us, and, and I already talked about it before he showed up that we did not feature the ventures, and I hope he uh, forgives me for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll make our mentioned songs. Yes, they definitely will, will make the mentioned Brought them songs. up early. But Walk Don't Run is just, they did a lot of covers. I know they did a lot oh, of covers, yeah. but Walk Don't Run is a classic. Walk Don't Run was their signature tune, yeah. you know. I, um, yeah, the 50s, and, well, even the 50s, because we've we talked about the 60s. The 50s, the rockabilly artists had a number of instrumentals as well um, like Rubber Rouser by Dwayne Eddy mm-hmm. and yeah, that was yeah, on my yeah, list yeah. that was on my short that was also on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack I believe was it? I think so Rubber Rouser? I think so yeah, hmm. pretty sure. I don't remember that, but you. you yeah. Well, I, I usually win these. I usually win. You these. usually do, yeah. So I'm not going to challenge you. Um, no, I remember. Uh, you never can tell by Chuck Berry. And I remember mm-hmm. Lonesome Town by Rick Nelson. I don't yep. remember. Yep. Well, Rubber we'll Rouser. check it later. But uh, nonetheless, yeah, the, the instrumentals. They, they there were a lot of them in the 50s and 60s. But again, in the 70s, I mean, we've had so many already on our list. The 80s, I think, was the the last of that big push to have instrumental tracks in the 90s I don't remember much instrumental music in the 90s at all um, yeah so yeah, yeah uh, it's it's all good um, okay well my next track this is the one on my list you said you had never heard um, which um, I don't even remember much about it other than my parents had the album I don't remember think is it was, this it was, it's popcorn by hot butter well, once I heard the song. Okay, once you heard it. I you, remember. Okay, so it was the, It's kind of a novelty tune. Right. Right? What it, year was it? Uh, it was 1972. Okay, yeah. I, I think I remember hearing it in a novelty context. Okay, so it was just uh, the title you, you didn't Correct. recognize. Correct. Okay. Correct. 
is a band, Hot Butter, that I know nothing about. I, I couldn't tell you if they ever uh, had any success. I mean, I, I have some notes here that I'll go over, but I mean, my parents just had this album. It was called 28 Big Hits, and it had literally uh, like a popcorn uh, like a movie theater a popcorn box yeah. that was basically glued onto the the album cover, and I just remember I must have been five six years old, and I would just play this on repeat. Well, that explains a lot. It does, yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> thank you. Um, but nonetheless, I, I just loved this song, and then I had forgotten all about it. I mean, it just out of sight, out of mind. I had not thought about this song in thirty years, and then when we talked instrumentals the memory just hit me and I, I knew I had to include it. I guess the original album from 72 was titled Music to Moog by. Moog spelled M-O-O-G. The Moog synthesizer, which it, was popular. Exactly, yep. yeah. Um, Hot Butter, uh, it turns out, was the alias of American keyboard virtuoso Stan Free. And Free had been a member of the pioneering Moog synthesizer ensemble called the First Moog Quartet. And during their 1969 tour of the States, they had used popcorn as an encore. And in 72, remembering the positive response the song had received, Free released it as a single and it became a worldwide hit. It peaked at number five in the UK. It became a number one hit in uh, about a half dozen countries. Here in the United States, it hit number nine. And it was one of the first pop hits to be entirely played by a synthesizer. So... Uh, I blame the Moog synthesizer for the uh, for the lackluster uh, performances on... Uh Street Life Serenade by Billy Joel. Yeah. He fell in love yeah. with that instrument for one album there. He did, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, what really hurts, like, even Root Beer Rag, which is impressive by in, in so many ways, but he's still playing it on the, the Moog synthesizer. It'd be so much... Like, yeah, he, that's he, No, I was thinking more like Great Suburban Showdown. Oh, and, yeah, 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 no, yeah, no, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah, no, agreed. Does he, you're right, he, has, he does. Yeah, he plays it on the Moog. And I think it's piano and... Well, maybe it's... I thought it was a combination of both. It might be a combination. Yeah, I think it is. I, I just know whenever yeah. he plays it live, because he actually plays it live now right. uh, in, in concert on occasion, now it's, of course, the piano. And right. it, it sounds so, so much clearer. Right. <laughs> you know, just... Yeah, the Moog. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, in the 70s, the Moog was... It, it had its 15 minutes. Um, the, uh, the song, though, uh, Hot Butter, I guess... Um, it, it was huge, you know, and so it wasn't just, you know, six-year-old me play, discovering this this novelty album that my parents had. I guess it. it, it so all the songs were like synthesized. Yeah, every song, every song by by Hot Butter. I mean, I understand why it's popcorn because he has a sound and the and, and the notes are very short, right, and very sharp, and they they yeah. pop around. Right. So it it's sounds. Like, it's like a staccato. It's like yeah. popcorn. I yeah. get that. Um, now this is an interesting fact, though. It has very little to do with the song, but Hot Butter. They, uh, the band Hot Butter, it was the very first act whose name started with Hot to reach the top 10 on the Hot 100. There are three other Hot bands, actually four, four other Hot bands that have reached the top 10. Bands with Hot in the name? Yes. I can't think of a single one can't right now. Can't think of any. One was Hot Chocolate. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, their, their big signature hit was You Sexy Thing. Right. There was a band called Hot which I, I'm not familiar with them. I guess their their big single was Angel in Your Arms. I don't, I don't know what that is. Hot Shelly Ray, mm. uh, early 2000s. They had Tonight Tonight. Um, and then the big one, I thought you'd name this one, the Red Hot Chili Oh, of Peppers. course, yeah. yeah okay. Red Hot Chili I'm Peppers. thinking hot is the first word. Yes, right. okay. Only, uh, only other bands with hot in the title that have hit the hot 100 top 10. Um, and last last point that I'll make because I actually watched this coming into uh, before the episode today. The Muppets actually made a video for Popcorn, 
and it's actually maybe that's where I know it. I, I don't know, but they made a video for this song that in 2010. Oh, 2010. Yeah, okay, it featured so it wasn't the original Muppet Show. No, 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 not the Muppet Show. Uh, but it features the Swedish Chef, who oh, basically he inadvertently starts the tune when he's microwaving popcorn, and it it, it is it is a lot. No, of fun. I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun. So I just wanted to throw that out there. If anybody out there is a Muppets fan, definitely check out the Swedish Chef uh, playing Ork popcorn. Ork and Ork. Ork all right. Another classic. I'm going to go with another classic from 1973 from the album Dreams. This is Jessica by the Almond Brothers Band. And full disclosure, when I was a kid, I thought their name was the Almond Brothers Band. Oh, easy. As in the nut. Easy mistake. <laughs> and then I realized, no, they're not the Almond Brothers. This song was written by uh, uh, band guitarist Dickie Betts, and the song was composed uh, to be played uh, using only two fingers of the left hand. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure why that was a goal two of his. But wow. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. That's, um, that's new. I never heard that before. I suppose if you, know, you are unfortunate enough to only have two digits, you can still play this song. There you go. Um, the track's name was after, the, the, track's, uh, the track was named, or titled, after Betts' infant daughter, who bounced around to the rhythm of the song. So he named it after his daughter, Jessica. Huh. Yeah, that's a, that's one thing I think I always find interesting is when you title a, a pop song with lyrics, usually the the title is pulled from you know the the chorus, correct, uh, or the refrain. Not all pop songs sometimes doesn't even appear in the lyrics, but when it's instrumental, right? How do you title the song? Is it based on the mood? Is it based on the rhythm? Some image it conjures up. In this case, it was his infant daughter. Um, the song was not nearly as commercially successful as the previous single, which was Ramblin' Man, but earned a permanent spot on classic rock radio for years to come. And, uh, you know, we, we did I cannot believe I didn't choose this when in season one we did our road trip episode. Oh, because yeah. this is one of the greatest road tripping songs well, it is. of all time. But we used Ramblin' Man because, of course, oh, we did the, use the song Man. is about a ramblin' that, That's why man. we didn't use so, Jessica then. Okay, right. that's the only way I could see we didn't use this song because we don't repeat artists on the, on the episode. So yeah, I mean, this is one of those. I'm taking a, a road trip uh, to Boston here in July, and I think uh, I'll make a, a mix uh, tape or playlist, you know. And uh, this one will probably start it off because roll the windows down, play Jessica on a summer day. Doesn't get better than that, right? And you know, this is just a fun tune, and it goes on forever. Yeah, I mean, it it's is a long track. A lot yeah. of these instrumentals are long tracks. Oh, they are. Yeah, this is going to be one of the longest mixtapes we have ever made. Um, yeah, a Boston road trip sound. Are you going to start with Please Come to Boston? Uh, oh, no, maybe, yeah. Dave Loggins. <laughs> it's not a very uh, 
not a, I don't know if it's a road trip. It's a great trip. road tripping song, but yeah. thematically. Thematically, thematically yeah. Or you can start with Cheers, everybody, where everybody knows your name, I suppose. But uh, Allman Brothers Band, of course, from the Southern Rock, uh, uh, you know, time period when you, of course, had Leonard Skinner. And uh, we've talked about 38 Special. You know, I guess they're kind of Southern Rock. They were from Florida and Southern Rock light, you know. Right. But there are a lot of the, those bands. And um, yeah, to me, it's kind of those Americana bands that have one foot in country, uh, oh, folk, yeah. and, and one foot in, in rock. And uh, yeah, well, the, yeah, the Almond Brothers were the original Southern Rock. Oh yes, so, yes. They, they, I would, I would venture a guess. I don't know which Almond Brothers or Doobies. I don't know which would have come first uh, chronologically, but they were the first two because the Eagles, the Eagles started. They were, they were more the California sound. Yeah, they were the California sound. Um, but Laurel, yeah. Laurel Canyon sound. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But uh, no, the Southern Rock, the country rock, it's it's good stuff. All right, this is my last pick of the episode. We're, right. we're not doing too no, bad. No, we're not doing too bad, actually. Made, made up for the chattiness earlier. Yeah. Um, all right, I had to include this. I, you can't do an instrumental mixtape and not include dueling banjos. Like a pig, yeah. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's still, you know, that movie still holds up. I still oh, enjoy does. watching yeah, that movie. It really does, yeah. And the cast, Burt Reynolds, John Voight. I mean, come on, yeah. Ned Beatty, yeah. Ned Beatty, who just passed not too long yeah. ago. It's a fantastic film, yeah. and I've never read the book. I have not either. Yeah, I've not, I've not read the book that it's based on. Um, I, you know, the film was so shocking uh, at the time of its release. Today, it's, it, it's. I see it as, as a horror film more yeah. than an adventure oh, film. Oh, very much, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's it's we've come so far in what is now tolerable and what's accepted, you know, by society. Deliverance is... Yeah, it was a pretty brutal thing. Inc- it it yeah. is, but yeah. today it's incredibly tame by, yeah. by yeah. comparison. But still, yeah, it's still uncomfortable, which it's supposed oh, to make well, you uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. Un- it, it, it should be uncomfortable. Um, all right, so Dueling Banjos. Uh, this was written and recorded originally in 1955 as feuding banjos by the country star Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith. And then a group called the Dillards popularized the song in the mid-60s on the folk circuit. It was their version that author James Dickey heard and thought would fit nicely in the film version of his novel, Deliverance. Uh, The song became famous, of course, finally, when it was used in the 1973 movie. Um, And it's it's a very early scene in in the film. Is it Peter Fonda is... 
It's Peter Fonda, right? Yeah, it's Peter yeah. Fonda. He's playing on the acoustic guitar. It's really Correct. not two banjos in the, in the film. He has an acoustic guitar. Right. And I believe the one boy comes yeah. out as the banjo. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the, the city guy, Fonda, he's from Atlanta. He trades licks with a young simpleton in the back. We'll call it a simpleton, yes. yeah. Um, and in the film version, as you said, um, Eric Weisberg is playing the five-string banjo, and Steve Mandel is on the acoustic guitar. Uh, it wasn't actually Fonda. Playing, right. Yeah. Uh, Weisberg and, and Mendel were folk musicians from New York City, and their musical inspiration was the bluegrass sound of Appalachia. Weisberg, I guess, had been playing in folk bands since the 50s, and he was a popular studio musician who played on Judy Collins' albums. And Mandel, he had been with the Phoenix Singers and was also an in-demand session pro. So when the song became a hit, uh, Arthur Smith, who originally recorded it as Feuding Banjos in 55, uh, he, he had to file a lawsuit to get credit for, for writing the song. Um, but yeah, the, the song was recorded uh, two years before the movie was released, which I found interesting. It was the first track on the soundtrack for the film, and it was the only newly recorded song. The entire rest of that soundtrack is made up of songs recorded in 1963 by Eric Weisberg. Um, and largely as a result of its use in the movie, today, you st- this song has not gone away. Um, it, it is often associated with country bumpkins, and the first few notes are often used in movies and TV shows to imply a hillbilly mentality. It's, it's still... It's almost, I've heard a version with kazoos before. With kazoos. <laughs> I've, I've not heard that before. I don't know that I'd want to hear that. <laughs> no, you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. Oh, the kazoo. Um, but anyway, yeah... Um, there you go. Um, yeah, it is. It, it's you know, if you just want to say nar, 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 I mean, you're just implying, you know, Appalachia. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, originally in this slot, we debated this. I think as soon as yesterday, I had Banana Wind by by Jimmy Buffett, which I love that track. In fact, that album Banana Wind, which came out, I want to say like ninety three, ninety four, uh, right, there, right around there. Yeah. Um, is is my wife and I? That's our go to road trip album. In fact, when we leave for our trip here on Saturday, and we hit the highway. The album Banana Wind will be the first thing. Really? I want to say enters our CD player, but no, it'll be on our, I, our, our phone. Knowing the album, that's a great pick, but I've, I've never associated it as a road trip. That is, and because we, we, we when we were newly married, um, it wasn't our honeymoon, but shortly after that, we took a trip to the East Coast, to the beach, and um, at that, that time, those albums were very popular. And so we really associate, and there's a lot of nostalgia with that album and, and, and our huh. first road trip kind of together. That and then Barometer Soup right. and then Fruitcakes. So it's kind of the uh, nice trilogy he had there. Yeah, it's I think all... Fruitcakes was first, then Barometer Soup, then Banana Went. Right. Anyway, yeah. um, it was between that and the, and the song that I chose. And, and you were right. You felt this was a little more Gen X, and people would know this. If you're not a parent head, you may not know the instrumental Banana Went. But yeah. it's a great, great instrumental, tropical, feel-good song. Oh, so it, it'll be on our mentioned yeah. songs list. Well, it's just, it has that... that just slow moving vibe you know it, it just it speaks to just laying in the hammock you yes. know letting the southern breeze just kind of wash over you um but yeah like i yeah you're right i if you're not a parrot head you don't know parrot heads will send hate mail but we ended up replacing <laughs> right. it with feels so good by uh is it Ch- chuck mangion I don't know the. I'm I don't horrible know, pronouncing. Yeah, I don't names. know if it's Manjoni or Manjoni, or I, I. I honestly don't know. And here's the here's the honest truth. Um, yesterday, I was preparing for the episode, and my wife was listening to her favorite summertime um, SM uh, XM radio uh, channel, which is Yacht Rock. We're big Yacht Rock fans, and this song came on, and I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I forget this song? Because it was a song, and then one of the reasons I can't remember, I don't know how to pronounce the, the man's name, was because, I, I mean, he's a jazz artist. Is, is he that influential? I'm not as a, a much of a jazz aficionado um, as you, 
but it's, it's not one that I was familiar with. He, he's he's well known within the jazz circles, but I, I wouldn't I don't know that I would say he's particularly influential on on, on the same level right. as some of the big right. You know, but I remember as a kid hearing this song on WHBC or you know Q ninety two was the station the pop station we listened to at least I listened to growing up, and they would always play two new songs. They had the same formula: two new songs and then like a, a, a classic. I remember that's the first time I heard Stairway to Heaven. And um, this was one of those classic ones they would throw in there. But because there are no lyrics, and they usually never announce the name of the classic song they played, I never knew what the name of the song was. Up like through college, I would hear it. And of course, we didn't have um, Shazam back then where you could pick out your phone and find (laughs) out what the song was. So for the longest time, I had no idea. I didn't have a version of the song. I wanted a version of it because I liked it, but I just didn't know how to find it. And no one ever said the name of the song. And we didn't have the internet and all that jazz, right? So now I finally know who it is. I still can't pronounce it. actually not playing a trumpet uh, on the track really he is playing a flugelhorn and if you look at the cover of the album it's it's it almost looks like a trumpet and a french horn got together because it's it's this really kind of strange shaped instrument so again not being a a band person or a brass person i'm sure there's listeners out there just shouting at at their their speakers right now because i don't know the flugelhorn Uh, but that's what he's actually playing um, the actual track itself is over eight minutes long uh, on the album, uh, but the artist, he had to trim it, trim it down to single length because they wanted to release it as a single, which was good because it was a hit. But he said it was just a painstaking process. He called it major surgery. Uh, you can imagine a jazz musician taking a composition that's intended to be eight minutes long and making it fit a three and a half minute uh, oh, yeah. single spot. Yeah. So that was painful for him. The song went all the way to number four on Billboard's Top 100 in 1977, and it was nominated for Record of the Year in 1978. Do you know what it lost to for Record of the Year in 1978? 78 Record of the Year. Yeah. Um, it's a song this artist always gives people choice to hear in concert, and the people wisely choose Vienna. Oh, okay. So it's it's got to be... Um, um, oh, my God. Billy Joel. <laughs> Billy Joel, uh, just, the way, just, just the, the way you are. are. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I didn't know. I just... I, I set you up for that one. I, well, and I the knew, softball. I knew the answer. It was just <laughs> no, it I know, was I know. just evading me. I know. So. This, this is what's going to happen. Later this week, uh, we're going to be uh, taping a, a, a podcast game show. Yeah. 
uh, on uh, and in the name of the uh, podcast who, is will, who will save, save Generation X. X. Yeah. And uh, that's my fear is that we're, we're unfortunately Alan and I are not going to team up. We're going to go head to head, which is probably never a good thing because we're very competitive. Right. And my fear, my fear, if I don't know the answer, I don't know the answer. My fear is I'm going to know the answer and not be able to recall it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, same, same thing. That's going to be the. Um, of course, it's it's hosted by our good friend Jason Zabos. He's he's in Utah, um, so he's he's behind us. So we're we're filming. We're not Late, filming it. We're well, recording it. Right. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's one of those mornings. But um, we're recording it late at yes. least late for us so yeah yes. uh, that combination apologies of, to my wife who will be trying to sleep yeah. for, uh, so, for work the next yeah, day that, that combination of uh the the late hour and just our old age yeah, yeah it'll I, be I, interesting it'll i be can fun. i can see us you know knowing but not being able it, to it answer. is by the way it is a great great podcast i haven't listened to all the episodes yet but it is it's a video game that he creates he puts an enormous amount of work not only well, in it's, preparing. A, it's, a, it's a trivia game it's not a not a video game did i say video game video i meant game. to say game show my, that's my okay. bad if, if see, i'm doing it too yeah if i'm gonna have a gaff you might well join me thank yeah. you um, <laughs> yeah it's a game show a trivia game show and he puts an enormous amount of work he tailors every single episode around the guests and you know because he said it's no great you don't want to ask about Knight Rider if, if the you know contestants are not familiar with Knight Rider right and so um, he's, he's, we had a survey to fill out and he's, he tailored the episode and so I'm looking forward to this to seeing how well what we do yeah well if he's looking for something that's mutual I, I can almost I, I don't know. In my mind, I can almost see the categories. Billy Joel, Billy Bruce Springsteen, jo- yeah. Stephen King. Star Wars. <laughs> Star yeah. Wars. Um, so it's, it's going to be, yeah. yeah. It'll be fun. It's either going to be right there and we are going to get very competitive or we are just going to forget everything. And, <laughs> it's going to be an awful. Blank. And, but check, yeah. out, check out Who Will Save Gen X. Um, it's, it's a wonderful podcast and we want to give a plug and, of course, give more um, as the time comes. Probably sometime in the end of July we'll probably be yep. dropping that. So yep. Anyway, yes, it lost to Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are, um, which is somewhat ironic since Joel hates that song and it reminds him of, of Elizabeth, his ex-wife, and uh, yeah. it's not one that he plays live. But, you know, I... Just a quick night. I, we've talked Billy Joy ad nauseum on this podcast, but that is still, it, it's probably one of the great standards of, of the, the I mean, last. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it is every bit uh, the classic. I mean, think of everybody who has covered just the way you are. Yes. I mean, even Sinatra hailed it as one of the greatest songs of the late 20th century. So, well, was it that or New York State of Mind? Because in New York State of Mind, it was his most covered. That's his yesterday. That's it. Yeah, that's his yesterday. No, it was just the way you are for Sinatra. Tony okay. Bennett has credited New York State of Mind okay. as the greatest. But um, yeah, no, it's I can't believe I could not come up with a name for that. I'm, I'm that's <laughs> fine. I, I said video game instead of game show, well, so yeah, my, yeah. my brain's right too. The song was uh, it's also a running gag on Mike Judge's animated series King of the Hill, uh, where the uh, artist himself uh, actually uh, made an appearance, and uh, was also on uh, episode of Friends. And most recently, the song appears in Marvel's Doctor Strange in 2016. So it's one of those, you know, it sounds somewhat, it sounds somewhat dated, 70s, kitschy, instrumental, but it's also it, it's just a great tune. It is great. It is. Yeah, and I. You know, it's a song that I had not even thought of. So when when you had uh, texted me that you were thinking about swapping Buffett for Manjoni, it, it just, I, it's a great fit, and it's a song that I, I I can't even say that I've heard it in probably. I mean, yeah, I mean, I gotta listen to Yacht Rock, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, it's 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 omnipresent, like in in clips and films and the like. But actually, listening to the song in its right, entirety, right. um, WHBC they used to do that a lot. In fact, I remember. Well, the news with with, with the intro the and outro of the stranger. Right, right. I mean, I it when I first heard the stranger, it blew me away. I'm like, oh, 
hell, this is where it came from. You know, it just. Uh, I did too when I got greatest hits volumes one and two on right, Bible, yeah, back in nineteen eighty five. So, in fact, I almost thought about using the reprise for the Stranger. Oh yeah, okay, I thought yeah. about using it, but then I'm like, do I really want to? Give up a slot and for like twenty used seconds. Root beer bag is another one I could didn't have, consider. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he has he has a few. In fact, oh, I might have went Nocturne. I might have went oh, all yeah. the way back all to Cold Spring back. Harbor. But yeah. Um, yeah, I will say this: we are as bad as my students. I, I just want to throw that out there. Well, because, I wouldn't say that, but well, well my, let me explain. Okay. okay. Because whenever my students are doing any kind of um, presentation, or whenever they're getting up in front of the class, they have to, you know. There's some oral component to what is being scored. Whenever they mispronounce anything, I always I because I teach honors and the expectation, you know, they're held to a higher level in my mind of things that you know being independent and being you know resourceful. They should just do, and one of sure. them is to look up pronunciation. Right. We are no better than my students because we're sitting here struggling over his name, and all all it would take is a quick Google search to find out. Well, how yes and no. I mean, some, sometimes those are inaccurate because they are their YouTube videos where they you know pronounce certain. This happened when I we did the Movie Day podcast, uh, my other podcast that's that's now defunct. Um, we would come across foreign directors, and we'd have the toughest time with the foreign well, directors. Yeah, and so we would try to find a YouTube clip like uh, Entertainment Tonight, or where they would interview. The artist, but then we even found that there were some. Um, I, uh, the, the young lady that plays uh, Wonder Woman. Oh, Gal Gadot. Yeah, um, they're actually uh, you know it's pronounced two different ways in the media, and then I forget which one she says is the correct way, but it's not the way that most of us Godot is the way that's right. actually pronounced. Well, but most people say Gadot, so you're you're never always necessarily right. right. Yeah, it's actually Gal Gadot. Okay, Gadot. Um, that's the Hebrew pronunciation because right, right. I've, I've actually seen her. Um, Name in right, Hebrew, right. but yeah, Gal Gadot or Gal Gadot, Gal Gadot, I think is what right most people pronounce. So that that's that's the thing. It's, it's there's not always like I remember our humanities teacher telling us that the correct uh, Van Gogh is actually Van Gogh. Yeah, but here's the problem: if I pronounce it that way, and they and and someone who's in the know would be impressed that I'm using the correct pronunciation. Anybody but else most thinks, people are not yeah. in the know, so they're going to think I'm an idiot if it, I don't say yeah. Van Gogh. So would you go with the common pronunciation? It's like Cthulhu, right? Which one do you go with? <laughs> no, that's a, it's a valid point. Bringing us back to Lovecraft. Yeah, and with with that, yeah. we we have we we finished with a a. Uh, pronunciate with a grammar lesson yeah. there you go have you seen those youtube um, videos where like there's this robotic voice and it, it pronounces certain words for you yeah, yeah yeah it's not always accurate no it's not but still uh, see, I, I never learned with phonics growing up i i i, I was i'm a sight reader okay. i would hear a word one time i would hear a word and i would see the word and then from then on i would always be able to pronounce it correctly but if, and in fact i read something it said don't make fun of of, of kids who mispronounce or adults who mispronounce words, um, uncommon words, because that means they're a reader. They're readers, yeah. And and if they weren't, you know, if their phonics skills aren't up to par, you're apt to mispronounce words that you read. So. Right. Well, and you know, phonics being what they are, I mean, there's a there except there are more exceptions Correct. to every rule than yes. than there are those that follow the rule itself. Um, but yeah, no, you never want to make, never ever make fun of anybody. They know the word because they read the word. Correct. You know, right. yep. and it's very unlikely they heard, they heard somebody reading the word to them aloud. So, right. All, all right. right. That's well, all for this week. That's it. Uh, we will be back next week with side B of our instrumental episode. Uh, but that's all for now. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. 